I next met with Dr. Terry Mamanis from the University of Florida Cancer Center in Orlando, and to begin, he presented a 58-year-old patient from his practice. That's a 58-year-old postmenopausal woman with an abnormal mammogram on a screening mammogram with a small density. It was about 7, 8 millimeters, and uh, it was invasive ductal carcinoma grade 2, ERPR positive and HER2 negative. So she underwent uh, lumpectomy and sent lymph biopsy with clean margins. The final pathology is about 9 millimeter, I think, invasive ductal carcinoma, and there were negative central lymph nodes. Again, ERPR positive and HER2 negative. So obviously the next step in that case was to determine whether adjuvant endocrine therapy alone is enough or whether there is need for adjuvant chemotherapy. And she underwent noncotype DX test that came back as a recurrent score of 25. Now at the time that this happened, had the TaylorX data been out yet? No, this was before TaylorX. This was about six, seven months ago. Interesting. So we can talk about the discussion you had with her then and maybe whether it would be the same discussion now. What was her general kind of attitude about chemotherapy and about her situation? Well, her outlook in general was she wanted to do whatever was needed to be alive and well. So that's why we decided to go ahead with a test just to see if there's any need. And we were actually sort of under the impression that probably the test will come back as a low score. Most of the characteristics were favorable. And it was initially, obviously, the discussions before the test was you probably don't need chemotherapy. More likely, you won't need chemotherapy. Small tumor, you know, grade 2, ERPR positive, HER2 negative with strong ER, I think the PR was a little lower, it was in the 60s or something. But then when the oncotype came back, I think the discussion took a little bit of a different angle, if you like, and we had a long discussion. And the issue was that even before Taylor X, what I told her was that it would be very difficult to learn a lot more from Taylor X for a particular patient with a recurrent score of 25, which was essentially at the limit of what Taylor X randomized patients. Told her that we know a lot about women, you know, with recurrent score over 30 or over that have significant benefit from chemotherapy. And analysis that we've done looking at even 20, 25 or over, they get significant benefit from chemotherapy when you lump patients together. So I told her that individually, I didn't think that the Taylor-X would be all that helpful at that point. You know, even if, let's say, as we know from the Taylor-X, for postmenopausal women, we saw no benefit from 11 to 25. However, you know, it's very hard to pick out only one score, 25, which is right on the edge and say what happens to these patients. Even to this day, we'll probably have some uncertainty. Is there some benefit or not? Based on all the discussions, she was actually pretty convinced that she felt that she should get chemotherapy just to be on the safe side and do whatever she thought, you know, would be possible to improve her outcome. So eventually that was the decision before Taylor X. And today... After Taylor-X, you probably can make the argument not to. However, I think, again, it's a very unique situation where you run a recurrent score of 25, where if it was 26, you'd be expecting significant benefit from chemotherapy if it was 27. And that's essentially sort of what the Taylor-X actually used those cutoffs because we wanted to be conservative, right? At some point, we didn't want to deprive women with 26, 27, 28 oncotype chemotherapy. So, I mean, that's one of the sort of, if you like, somewhat controversial issues, and that is what you do between 25 to 30 now. Obviously, we give them chemotherapy. The Taylor-X 
gave chemotherapy to these patients without randomization, right? Because we thought they were high risk and they benefited from chemotherapy. So I'd like to actually go through the Taylor X study, certainly a historic study, and you know, kind of elaborate a little bit more about some of the granularity of what was reported. But you know, first, just taking a step back, it's kind of interesting if you think about this lady. You know, everybody always points back to the, I think it was a 2000 consensus conference when a statement was made for any patient who had a tumor greater than one centimeter, they needed chemotherapy if they were node negative. And then people look to that and say, well, it's changed so much since, you know, the recurrence score of the oncotype came out. But it's interesting, you know, in terms of a lot of people not getting treated. But it's also interesting to think about this lady, because this lady would not have been treated under that consensus. She was under a sonometer, and she ended up getting chemotherapy. And, you know, a lot of people focus on the avoidance of chemotherapy, but there are also people who get chemotherapy who wouldn't have gotten it. Right, exactly. Patients that are low risk, and that's true for the Taylorex as well, patients that are clinically low risk. However, some of these patients do have genomically high risk, and certainly from the results of the B20 trial, and obviously from the no-positive trial as well, the SWOG trial, we see that these patients benefit from chemotherapy biologically. So absolutely, I think there's an over-treatment issue, but it's also an under-treatment issue. So let's go through the Taylor-X study, maybe not every single detail of it, but the most important findings, you know, sort of what it looked at, what were the main findings that came out, and how do you think it applies to clinical practice? So the main finding from the Taylor-X essentially it was that the endocrine therapy alone was not inferior to chemotherapy plus endocrine therapy for patients with recurrence scores of 11 to 25. This is the group that was randomized. This was the primary endpoint of the study. It was actually had significant power to detect even a small difference. And despite that, they did not detect any difference. So the overall message is with recurrence scores of 11 to 25, there's no benefit from chemotherapy in terms of disease-free survival, relapse-free survival, distant disease-free survival or overall survival. However, because of the size of the study, they actually did an exploratory analysis looking at subsets of patients to see if they can identify any subsets that may benefit from chemotherapy. And interestingly, when you look at the multivariate analysis, the recurrence scores was not a significant predictor. Size of the tumor was not a significant predictor. Menopausal status was not a significant predictor. Grade was not a significant predictor. In other words, there was no subset according to size, grade, menopausal status, or even recurrence score group, let's say 11 to 16, 15 to 16 to 20, or 21 to 25, that benefit from chemotherapy. But when they looked at the age of the patient, Age was a significant predictor. There was an interaction between age and chemotherapy benefit. And more interestingly, there was a, what we call a three-way interaction between age, recurrence score, and chemotherapy benefit. In other words, essentially, women over 50 did not benefit from chemotherapy. That was clear. Under 50, there was some benefit from chemotherapy, but it was limited to patients with recurrence score of 16 to 20, and more importantly, 21 to 25. This is where we saw more of the benefit from chemotherapy, about a 6% or so difference in distant recurrence. There was about a 2 2.5% difference in recurrence scores 16 to 20, and there was no difference in recurrence scores 11 to 15, whether premenopausal or postmenopausal. So there was this interaction where you had to be young, under 50, but also you had to have a recurrence score of 21 to 25, and maybe to a lesser degree, 16 to 20. Now, 
from that standpoint, you can argue that the TaylorX sets now a different cutoff for chemotherapy benefit. For postmenopausal women, there is no chemotherapy benefit all the way up to 25 recurrent score. For premenopausal women, it appears that 16 to 20 or 21 to 25 is where the benefit starts accumulating. And in fact, the benefit from 21 to 25 was substantial. I mean, again, 6 to 7% difference in distant recurrence is something that the B20 showed overall. It was actually a little bit less than that, about a 5%. So for that benefit, we would recommend chemotherapy to somebody today, personally I would, that is under the age of 50, is premenopausal, and has a recurrent score of, let's say, 22, 23, 24. So the obvious thought here is, first of all, I think most of these women did not get ovarian suppression or ablation because the study started a while back when it wasn't done as much. Right. Only 15% actually of the patients had ovarian ablation, I think. So the issue then would be, is what you're seeing really chemotherapy suppressing the ovaries? Any thoughts about that? Yeah, we think so. I think that's a possible explanation. We think that if all, if not all, some of the benefit may be through the endocrine pathway. We've seen that in B14, when we looked at the benefit from endocrine therapy by recurrent score is in the low risk and intermediate risk, all the way to 30 recurrent score had benefit from endocrine therapy, but 31 or over, there didn't seem to be a lot. So we think it's an endocrine therapy benefit, but it's very difficult to distinguish how much is chemotherapy itself and how much is endocrine therapy. Interestingly, when you look at neoadjuvant data with a recurrent score and look at pathologic complete response, we don't see really pathologic complete responses all the way to a bio-recurrent score of 25. Most of the pathologic complete responses occur on the recurrent score, high recurrent score patients, you know, 30 or over. So from that standpoint, it may also not be a chemotherapy direct cytotoxic benefit, but maybe through the endocrine pathway. So I guess another issue that's important to point out is the idea of this recurrent score being a continuous variable. Can you talk a little bit about that? And I think that touches into your discomfort when you're right on the very edge at 25 of, quote, intermediate. Right. And I think that the, certainly the recurrent score provides more granularity, and there's a lot of debate whether why shouldn't it be dichotomous or trichotomous or what is continuous. But the fact is that at the end of, the, obviously in an ideal world, we like to know yes or no, are you going to have a recurrence or not? That's not an ideal world. It doesn't happen that way. We always end up giving percentages for recurrence. And the fact that you have this continuous variable, I think is actually not a disadvantage, but more of an advantage because you know exactly where you are prognostically, number one. However, the benefit from chemotherapy seems to be more dichotomous, meaning that, you know, you don't get much benefit from chemotherapy in postmenopausal women under 25, but you probably get most, if not all of the benefit over the recurrent score of 25, certainly over 30. But for premenopausal women, it appears that the cutoff is a little bit different. So although the recurrent score is a continuous variable as it comes to prognosis, when it comes to prediction of chemotherapy benefit, it appears to be a little bit more dichotomous, so to speak. You know, like within 16 to 20 is when you start seeing benefits from chemotherapy and about 25 or over in premenopausal and 25 or over you see it in postmenopausal. So I think these data are actually very helpful because now you can also discuss with patients only with a very small subset of patients you have to have the long discussion. Like a premenopausal woman with a recurrent score of 16 to 20, you say you have benefit about 2% distant recurrence reduction, do you want to take chemotherapy for that? But that's a very, very small subset. The majority of the patients is a simple decision. You look at the score, you say you don't need or you don't benefit from chemotherapy or you need or benefit from chemotherapy. 
So I think the results of TaylorX are very helpful, actually. Can you talk a little bit about how the data that currently is available supporting the recurrence score, particularly now that we have this incredible new data set out there, how that compares to data we have for other genomic markers, including the 70 gene assay? Yeah, so as you know, the 70 gene assay is primarily a prognostic assay. We don't have a lot of evidence from chemotherapy benefit. And in the MindDuck trial that was applied, clearly showed that if you have a high clinical risk, but a low genomic risk, the primary endpoint of the study was that if the outcome is more than 92.7% disease-free survival, then the test is prognostic. And in fact, it was. It was about 94.5. So clearly, for high-risk patients who have a low genomic profiling test, their prognosis is good. What the mind that could not tell us for sure is whether there was chemotherapy benefit or not. So you are left essentially with a group that does very well, has about a 4 or 5% risk of, or 6% risk of recurrence. But if the patient asks, would my risk be less if I got chemotherapy or not? You can say, well, didn't seem to be any chemotherapy benefit for that group, but the power wasn't there to detect that benefit. The number of patients was small. So as a result, as you know, in the ASCO guidelines, the MAMA print is for no positive patients, high-risk patients, to determine prognosis. So you can tell a no positive patient that you have low risk for recurrence, despite the fact that you have high clinical risk. And certainly the chemotherapy benefit can say much about whether there is a reason, but certainly it might be small because of the small risk for recurrence. But it couldn't provide the same granularity thing that the TaylorX provided for the mostly low-risk patients. The TaylorX included about 75% of the patients with low clinical risk when it came to the randomization of recurrence score 11 to 25. But about 40% of the patients over 25 recurrence score were high clinical risk, actually, compared to you know the 25% that were high clinical risk, 11 to 25. Still with TaylorX, though, Patients with low clinical risk may end up having high recurrence score, and obviously vice versa. Patients with high clinical risk will have low recurrence score, in which case they could be under treatment or over treatment if you don't take into account the genomic profile. You mentioned patients with node positive disease. Right now, what genomic assay, if any, do you utilize in that situation? We use the recurrence score selectively for patients with a small number of uh, no positive disease, like one or two or three positive nodes, a micrometastasis. Not routinely, but we use it not uncommonly, particularly for obviously postmenopausal patients. Most of the data we have in not positive patients are in postmenopausal patients from the Cathy Albain SWOG8814 study and the trans attack. That shows essentially that the recurrence score is prognostic, clearly, for no positive patients, and also is predictive of chemotherapy benefit in the SWOG8814 trial, similar to the B20 trial. So looking at the biology of the disease, we don't believe that there's a big change in the biology, whether you have one or two positive nodes versus having negative nodes. Clearly, you get a premium of risk when you have one or two positive nodes compared to negative nodes, but that increase is actually very small, particularly if the patient has a low, let's say, oncotype score. It's incrementally much smaller. And we don't believe that there's much benefit from chemotherapy. And with that approach, we use the test selectively for these patients to avoid chemotherapy. I would not necessarily use this test right now for premenopausal patients to make decisions. Although if somebody, let's say, with one or two positive nodes had an oncotype for whatever reason, and it's like five or 10, 
I would feel pretty comfortable that there will be much chemotherapy benefit. But when it comes to the range of 11 to 25, those patients I would probably recommend chemotherapy if they're under 50 and have one or two positive nodes. I wanted to ask you about the so-called Claylet breast cancer registry. I thought that was an interesting study. I hadn't heard about that before. Can you talk about that? Yeah, Clalit is a healthcare provider in Israel, and they have used the Ricanoscore as part of the guideline for several years. And they actually, the physicians treat according to the Ricanoscore. So they publish their experience, which is a prospective, essentially, population-based study, where the majority of the patients with Ricanoscore 0 to 18 did not get adjuvant chemotherapy. And they've reported actually excellent outcomes for these patients, both in non-negative as well in some not-positive patients. So the results actually from the Clalit registry are very consistent to what we've seen with other data sets, both in non-negative and non-positive patients, including the SEER data sets that has published and presented, linking their experience with the Oncotype DX with clinical outcomes from the SEER registry with over 45 or 40,000 non-negative patients. So the Clalit data are very consistent. Most of the data we've seen with the Oncotype are actually very consistent. We haven't seen any aberrant data that you scratch your head and say, why is this different than before? It's all very, very consistent in terms of the outcome and benefit from therapy. One other question about this case. I see that this patient had hypofractionated breast radiation therapy. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, that's sort of for lumpectomy patients, particularly non-negative patients, has become pretty much the standard of care now. Most patients have a fractionated 16 to 15, 16, 20 treatments. So the treatment now lasts usually about three and a half weeks. We don't treat usually for five, six weeks what we used to. So it's a much shorter regimen, much better tolerated. There's been a lot of experience with several clinical trials that have shown that hypofractionated radiotherapy actually is as effective as a standard fractionation with even somewhat better cosmetic outcomes. So that's becoming essentially the standard nowadays. Anything else new in terms of breast radiation therapy, intraoperative radiation, et cetera, that you want to comment on? So intraoperative radiation is something we don't do actually in our center. And for me, looking at the data, I get the impression, of course, that there is a little bit higher risk of local recurrence for patients that get intraoperative radiotherapy. So we haven't adopted that yet as a standard. I know people are using it. You can use it sort of as a boost to avoid the boost eventually using with whole breast radiotherapy. But in general, we haven't used it as a standard. So I want to ask you also about an area that you've had interest in and have done some work in, and you actually have a patient to talk about, and that is the issue of the Oncotype DCIS score. And you have this 56-year-old lady. Maybe you can talk a little bit about her. Right. She's a 56-year-old postmenopausal female who had a small area of DCIS, 1.2 centimeters or so, had a wide excision with negative margins, and again, try to make a decision whether this patient needs whole breast radiotherapy or can avoid radiotherapy was a grade two lesion. So in that patient, we use the DCIA score with the idea that if the score comes back as low, her risk for local recurrence in the breast is low, around 10% or so, and then you can potentially avoid radiotherapy. Now, the DCI score is a little bit different than sort of the invasive score because clearly it's prognostic for risk of in-breast recurrence. However, it's not predictive of radiotherapy benefit. It's not sort of the same as we've seen with the chemotherapy benefit. 
This was shown to be prognostic in the ECOG 5194 trial, eventually validated in the Ontario cohort, and eventually a meta-analysis of the two trials gave us more granularity in terms of outcomes of these patients. So essentially what that tells us is that if you have a low DCI score, you have much lower risk of local recurrence than if you have an intermediate or high recurrence score. But an interesting observation from that experience was that when you do a multivariate analysis, you look at independent predictors, age of the patient and size of the tumor, as well as the DCI score, are independent predictors. And when you actually introduce the DCI score in the model, the hazard ratios from size and age or menopausal status do not change at all. In other words, those factors are totally independent predictors. So the way I interpret the data with this is that if I have a patient who has favorable criteria otherwise, meaning postmenopausal like this lady with a small DCIS under two centimeters, If I get a favorable score, like a low score, which this patient had, then that would be a patient that would consider avoiding radiotherapy because the risk of recurrence is essentially 10% or less, depending on the DCIS score falls. I don't feel compelled to use it in a different way in a younger patient, like let's say 40 or 45-year-old, or a patient with a large DCIS, because if the score comes back low, then you have to modify your estimate for recurrence upwards because of the clinical pathologic factors, because they're independent. So I use it more to actually help my decision to avoid radiotherapy if I was on the verge for somebody that's postmenopausal, let's say, and has a small tumor. So because the estimates of risk of recurrence are independent essentially on the DCI score and tumor size and menopausal status. But I think that can be helpful for patients that actually are postmenopausal with small tumors that can validate either what you avoid radiotherapy or, on the other hand, if the score is high, then push these patients to receive radiotherapy because that will certainly reduce the risk of local recurrence. I have the feeling that the DCS recurrence score is not utilized that often. Is that your impression? And if so, why? That's true. And the reason is sometimes that the decision of not giving radiotherapy is made independent of the score sometimes. As we know, about 30% of the women or so do not receive radiotherapy after DCIS in the United States. So that decision is made based on patient preference sometimes. The patients don't want to get radiotherapy or physician preference. On the other hand, also, a lot of patients with DCIS nowadays still get mastectomies for reasons that sometimes are justified or for reasons of preference. In other words, some patients present with more extensive disease that require a mastectomy. Some patients have a choice. They say, I like a mastectomy because that's sort of like the warning sign. The DCIS, I don't want to get the invasive cancer. I don't have to go through treatment. So based on all that, this somehow dilutes all the numbers. But indeed, the DCIS score is not used as much as you would think it should be used. Part of the issue is also that it doesn't predict benefit from radiotherapy. You can say to the patient, okay, you may have a 10% risk of local recurrence, not a 20% risk. But if the patient says, well, if I get radiotherapy, what would my risk be? Essentially, it would be about 50% of that. It would be 5%. And some people may want to get radiotherapy for a 5% benefit. Some people may not. So it's a different situation as we have with the invasive recurrence score, where you have a low recurrence score, you don't get any benefit from chemotherapy, period. That's a much easier decision not to do it. What are some of the common questions that you receive from surgeons about the management of DCIS? 
Well, I think one of the questions that was addressed somewhat recently, but there's still maybe a little bit of debate, is what is an adequate margin for DCIS? You know, for years we didn't know. There was an invasive consensus that said no tumor or NING is appropriate for invasive breast cancer, even if the margin is involved with DCIS. That's interesting. But for DCIS patients, a similar consensus panel recommended about a two-centimeter margin. So that's a little bit more granularity in terms of the margin for DCIS. So a little bit of wider margin for DCIS is appropriate. Not to say that anybody that say that has a DCS margin of one millimeter should definitely undergo re-excision. If it's a focal margin and everything else is favorable, you can modify that and not necessarily take the patient to surgery. That was made clear by the statement. But if you say you have multiple margins that are very close, one millimeter, less than one millimeter, I think a re-excision is important. And that's one area of sort of debate still in the surgical circles. But as I said before, mainly because of patient preference, a lot of the patients with DCIS may undergo bilateral mastectomies nowadays. Not all, of course, but a good proportion of patients bring that as a point. And even if you don't recommend it as a surgeon, we go through the motions in terms of how much risk of contralateral breast cancer exists or ipsilateral new breast cancer in the future. For a 35 or 40-year-old woman or 45-year-old woman with a life expectancy of 40 to 45 years, there's a long time to go to potentially develop another breast cancer. Some people just don't want to take that risk. But obviously, we explain to the patients that that's essentially almost like a prophylactic surgery at that point. But we do that also for genetic mutations, as you know. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you about that, actually, the issue of prophylactic mastectomy. And actually, to get into that, you had a case, a 38-year-old woman. Can you talk a little bit about her? This was a 38-year-old woman with uh, family history of breast cancer and a BRCA1 mutation. It was found in her mother, and then eventually the patient was tested and was found to have the same deleterious mutation at the age of 38. So the patient, obviously, having a consultation and discussing risk of recurrence of breast cancer developing in the next, you know, 55, 60 years of life expectancy, made the decision to undergo bilateral prophylactic mastectomy. And so she underwent a bilateral niposparin mastectomy with reconstruction. Any comments about techniques that are used and the optimal way to do this procedure? And what kind of cosmetic result did she have? She had an excellent cosmetic result. If you can do a niposparin mastectomy and if all goes according to the plan, patients have actually excellent cosmetic results. In our place and in most cases, people use inframammary fold incisions. They're very well hidden in ferrolateral. You can take the whole breast from that, including tissue behind the nipple. Several now studies have shown that it's a safe procedure for prophylactic surgery, even in BRCA-mutated patients. Uh, Very, very low risk of developing a breast cancer after bilateral prophylactic mastectomy, even if it's nipple sparing. So patients are actually very satisfied. There is obviously loss of sensation or some variability in sensation. The nipple essentially becomes part of the skin. It's not necessarily the nipple with the stimulation that exists before. However, most patients actually, when I require later on in follow-up, they feel actually very happy and comfortable with the procedure. They don't mind a little bit of hypesthesia that, again, can be variable. And in fact, these patients then, you can argue that they have a very, very low risk of developing a breast cancer ever, much lower than the average woman that walks in the street. They have probably not more than 1% risk of lifetime developing breast cancer. So they feel very gratified with that. Obviously, you know, with reconstruction, sometimes there could be some issues. But in general, when there's no radiotherapy involved, it's just a clear, just mastectomy, I think people do actually pretty well. So you had a couple papers in this past year regarding management of the axilla, one in the Lancet, 
current approach to the axilla in patients with early stage breast cancer and another in the annals of surgical oncology, optimizing surgical managing the axilla after neoadjuvant therapy. Can you talk about both of those scenarios and what you think maybe some of, if there are any myths or misperceptions out there about that? Yeah, so clearly I think the area of how we manage the axilla in patients that receive neoadjuvant chemotherapy has undergone significant evolution. For years we had a big debate about should we do a central lymph node biopsy before or after neoadjuvant chemotherapy for patients that present with clinically negative axilla. After long debate, I think the majority now, the consensus is to do the central lymph node biopsy after neoadjuvant chemotherapy. The reason for that is to essentially capitalize on the downstaging effect of neoadjuvant chemotherapy. We have a lot of evidence to say that in clinically non-negative patients, the central lymph node biopsy works as well before neoadjuvant chemotherapy as well as after. In other words, the accuracy is the same. So because of that, the main reason is if you do it before, sometimes you may find then patients that have subclinically involved axillary nodes that you potentially then commit them to an axillary dissection because, you know, then particularly if they undergo mastectomy or if they have triple negative or more unfavorable profile. So after long debate, we like to do the central lymph node biopsy after neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And we believe that the clinical characteristics, the performance characteristics of central biopsy are actually very good after neoadjuvant chemotherapy for these patients. Now, the debate happens also, what happens to patients that have clinically positive axilla, or you do an ultrasound or fine needle aspiration and it's positive, and you want to give them neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Well, as you know, nowadays, the majority of patients that get neoadjuvant chemotherapy are triple negative or HER2 positive, or maybe a high recurrence score or high-risk ER positive patient. Now, those patients, though, have significantly higher rates of pathologic complete response nowadays, and the HER2 positive setting upwards of 50, 60, even 70%, triple negative if you add carboplatin, close to 50%. So those patients have a good opportunity to actually sterilize their axillary nodes and convert them from positive to negative. So by doing the sentinel lymph node biopsy after neoadjuvant chemotherapy, we have the ability to actually downstage the axilla and reduce the extent of the morbidity of an axillary dissection. Now, for these patients, we had prospective trials to look at the performance characteristics of sentinel lymph node biopsy, the ACOSOC Z1071, the Sentina trial, and the Canadian trial, SNFNAC trial, all of which had shown that when you do that, when you take patients with positive nodes before, you give them neoadjuvant chemotherapy, the nodes become clinically negative, and then you do a central lymph node biopsy. The false negative rate is a little higher, but mostly is dependent on the number of removed lymph nodes. If you remove more than two lymph nodes, the false negative rate falls into the single digits, which is essentially what we see from the NSABP B32 years ago. So there are some ways of optimizing the management of these patients. First of all, removing at least two, preferably three, sentinel lymph nodes. Do a dual mapping. More importantly nowadays, though, the biggest development is the fact that when we do a biopsy of the lymph nodes before neoadjuvant chemotherapy, we put a marker in the nodes. And when you identify the clipped node or the marked node and you remove this node, then the false negative rate drops significantly, almost 2 3% four percent in some series. So this is what we call now targeted axillary dissection. In other words, we do the lymphatic mapping, we do the sending lymph node biopsy after neoadjuvant chemotherapy, 
but also we make every effort to remove the node that was marked before to make sure that the node that was positive is now removed and examined. And if that node is negative, then I think we have a good chance of not having a false negative sentinel node. In addition, some studies have shown that if you employ immunohistochemistry after neoadjuvant chemotherapy and remove any non-sentinel nodes, if the sentinel node is positive, even by immunohistochemistry, you actually don't increase so much the unnecessary axillary dissection rate, but you improve on your false negative rate. In other words, the sentinel lymph node may be involved with micrometastasis or isolated tumor cells, but other lymph nodes will be involved as well. That's not an unnecessary axillary dissection. So this is how we manage patients now that present with a positive axilla and we can convert them to negative axilla after neoadjuvant chemotherapy. What about the patient with a positive sentinel node after neoadjuvant therapy, either in a patient with initially positive nodes or maybe just wasn't initially positive? So for patients that have positive nodes up front, or not, and undergo neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and then you do a central lymph node biopsy, let's say the nodes are clinically non-negative now, but the central node is positive, the standard of care is to dissect the axilla, to do an axillary dissection, because studies time and again have shown that the chance of finding additional positive non-central nodes is pretty high, in the range of about 50 to 60 percent of non-central nodes will be positive. And that's true also even if the central lymph node is involved with micrometastasis or isolated tumor cells even, although with isolated tumor cells, the rate of non-sentinel positivity is lower. But even if the sentinel has micrometastasis, the risk of additional nodes is pretty high. So the standard of care is to do an axillary dissection. We do have a clinical trial through the National Clinical Trials Network, the Alliance 11202 trial, that targets exactly those patients if they have positive nodes before, biopsy proven, they go through neoadjuvant chemotherapy, clinically non-negative, they get a sentinel biopsy. If the sentinel node is positive, then they get randomized to completion axillary dissection or not, trying to see whether, since these patients are going to get radiotherapy anyways, you know, either post-lampectomy with original nodal radiotherapy or post-mastectomy, whether the completion axillary dissection is necessary or you can actually only induce morbidity and not much benefit. So that's an important trial that is taking place right now. So hopefully we'll complete accrual to this trial in the next couple of years. Any other comments about management of the axilla in early stage breast cancer and the patient who's not getting neoadjuvant therapy? Anything new in terms of that? So, I mean, obviously the standard of care is to perform lymphatic mapping and send lymph node biopsy. We still do dual mapping. There's some new agents that are percolating, magnetic agent like Centimag that hasn't been approved yet, but there was a trial that showed similar characteristics with a radiocolloid. There is andocyanin green, some other agents of mapping. So that's some research there. But in general, we do that. We do that pretty routinely now. Send lymph node biopsy is the standard of care for patients with clinically negative axilla. Now, what gets a little tricky is, obviously, as you know, the Aquasoc Z11 trial showed that even if the sentinel node, one or two sentinel nodes are positive, completing the axillary dissection would not improve outcomes. That's the Armando Giuliano papers. And so for lumpectomy patients that meet the Z11 criteria, 
then we actually do not complete the axillary dissection, even if the you know, honor to sentinels are positive. So for those patients that present with clinically negative axilla and have breast-conserving surgery, we don't even do intraoperative assessment for those patients. We just take the sentinel nodes, do permanent evaluation. If they're negative grade, if one or two has some disease, then we don't go back because we rely on radiotherapy to the breast essentially to control the disease. And the Z11 has shown clearly that there is no benefit besides obviously adding morbidity by the axillary dissection. So we have minimized essentially the need for an axillary dissection for patients up front. Now for mastectomy patients, we still do intraoperative assessment in our institution. And if we find the sentinel to be positive, then you have to make a decision whether you dissect the axilla or you rely on radiotherapy. If you're fairly certain that the patient will get radiotherapy anyways, then you probably don't need to dissect the axilla based on the amaros trial because the outcome of those patients was the same if they got radiotherapy or they got completion axillary dissection, but the lymphedema rate was lower with radiotherapy. On the other hand, though, the guidelines suggest that if you don't think that you're going to give radiotherapy to the patient after mastectomy, then you're better off sometimes to dissect the axilla to avoid the radiotherapy particularly for patients who have reconstruction. Let's say if one has one positive node and then you take another, let's say, seven or eight nodes that are negative, if everybody agrees that you don't need to give radiotherapy for such a patient, then you can essentially avoid more morbidity by doing that versus doing an axillary dissection. So we're talking about management of the axilla in the setting of neoadjuvant therapy. And I want to ask you in general about the issue of neoadjuvant therapy. We saw in the Lancet Oncology a big meta-analysis that came out of the early breast cancer trials collaborative group. I'm curious what your thoughts were about that. Also, some work that you did looking at local regional recurrence in patients getting neoadjuvant therapy, a paper that was published in Cancer. So the meta-analysis that you mentioned was an important paper. They looked at the neoadjuvant versus adjuvant chemotherapy and looked at outcomes of the patients. They confirmed essentially what we knew, that there is no difference in survival or distant recurrence if you get neoadjuvant or adjuvant chemotherapy. They also noted the slight increase in local recurrence in the neoadjuvant chemotherapy group versus the adjuvant chemotherapy group. Now, there are a couple issues with that. Number one is numerically we've seen that before in B18 and several of the other trials. And when you think about it, when you take patients that have bigger tumors that they require mastectomy, you downstage them to breast conservation, you put them into the bucket of breast conservation. So you compare the new adjuvant to adjuvant chemotherapy, you compare the bucket with a lot higher risk patients to a bucket with a lower risk patients, you would expect a little bit more local recurrence rate as a result. Embedded in that analysis, also another meta-analysis, was the fact that some series that were included in this meta-analysis did not have surgery as part of the treatment. In other words, they gave neoadjuvant chemotherapy with the French studies, and then if they had a clinical complete response, they gave radiotherapy to the breast. They did not do surgery. And those studies have higher rates of local recurrence. Now, in a previous meta-analysis, when they excluded these studies from the meta-analysis, the remaining studies, when surgery took place, there was no difference in local recurrence between the neoadjuvant and adjuvant approach. In this meta-analysis, they looked at that, and they made the comment that they did not see any interaction in terms of including or excluding these studies. So they said even if you excluded the study, it was a little bit higher, and there was no interaction. So 
you can then make the conclusion from this that yes, there is a little higher rate of local recurrence was about 5% difference, but that's inclusive of the studies that surgery did not take place. If you exclude those, probably it would be smaller. So you would expect that there better be 2 or 3% maybe difference in local recurrence, which is not a reason to not take the neoadjuvant approach with several other benefits, as you well know. But this is what this meta-analysis showed. Now, we had published information looking at local recurrence after neoadjuvant chemotherapy and tried to identify independent predictors in the B18 and B27 studies. And essentially what we found was that the local recurrence is dependent on the response of the tumor in the breast and nodes. In addition to some factors that you can determine before neoadjuvant chemotherapy, such as, for example, tumor size for mastectomy patients, such as age for lumpectomy patients, and also clinical nodal status. Patients with palpable axillary nodes had higher risk of local recurrence. But all these factors are modified by the presence of pathologic complete response in the breast and sterilization of nodes to negative. And then you can modify the risk downwards. And as a result of that, we now have a clinical trial that is ongoing for several years now, hopefully on the way to completion in the next couple of years, where we take patients with positive nodes before neoadjuvant chemotherapy that become clinically non-negative. After neoadjuvant chemotherapy, we do the central node, biopsy or axial dissection, and if the nodes are negative, then we randomize them to comprehensive radiotherapy or not. So this is a prospective trial building on the data that we've discussed from the B18 and B27, trying to show that for patients that do convert the nodes from positive to negative, the radiotherapy will not improve on disease-free survival, essentially, invasive disease-free survival. That includes both local and distant recurrence as well. So that's an important study. Hopefully, we'll complete accrual in the next couple of years and get results soon that will help us modify our approach. What about in the randomized studies, the old studies of neoadjuvant versus adjuvant? When you focus on patients with breast conservation, could you see a difference there in local recurrence? Yeah, there was. I mean, in the B18, we saw about a 3% difference in local recurrence. And this was not significant per se, but when we look at the meta-analysis, about the same difference became statistically significant. But again, in the meta-analysis, you had the issue of the studies with no surgery. And then when they looked at separately, then the studies that have surgery did not show a significant difference. You referred before to studies of genomic assays in the neoadjuvant setting. Do you think right now, we know from having surveyed investigators that there's a fair number of them who do use, for example, the 21-gene recurrence score in the neoadjuvant setting. You mentioned before that, you know, triple negative, HER2 positive, you see high response rates, not so high in the patients that ER positive HER2 negative disease. Do you see that there's a role? I mean, theoretically, if a patient had a really low recurrence score and they needed, we've had cases presented like this, they needed to have tumor shrinkage to go to breast conservation, maybe they'd be better off with hormonal therapy. Do you see a role for that nowadays? Yeah, I do. I mean, I agree that we don't utilize as much, but for a patient that's clinically non-negative, let's say, that presents with a sizable tumor in the breast and you think that you may be able to downstage to a lumpectomy or spare the nipple because the tumor is, let's say, in a subarellar area and you want to downstage, the question you ask yourself is, the same patient, let's say, with a three-centimeter tumor, if I had done surgery and then the nodes were negative and then I got a non-cotype test and the recurrence score was 10, would I give this patient chemotherapy? And the answer is you wouldn't. So why would you want to downstage them with chemotherapy up front? And that is why 
that can be helpful because if indeed you find that you have a low recurrence score, you don't have to do it later, number one. And number two, you can downstage them potentially with endocrine therapy. And studies have shown that you can do that and you can actually downstage patients to breast conservation that way. On the other hand, if you did find that the patient has a high recurrence score, then obviously you can give them chemotherapy in the neoadjuvant setting because you know you're going to have to give them chemotherapy after you do surgery, so why not capitalize? There's a high rate of pathologic response, and there's a probably good probability that you're going to shrink the tumor and actually perform breast-conserving surgery. Now, there are patients, though, in the ER-positive setting, particularly those with lobular carcinoma or a lot of these multicentric ER-positive patients, where you don't think you're going to be able to downstage them with neoadjuvant, whatever therapy you want to give them. You know, in a lobular carcinoma patients, it's very unlikely that I'm going to convert from mastectomy to lumpectomy with neoadjuvant therapy. Very low pathologic response rates with chemotherapy and almost no pathologic response rates with endocrine therapy. So I don't usually treat those patients with endocrine therapy. I usually go to surgery first and I do whatever surgery I have to do. If I have to do a mastectomy, I do a mastectomy, then get the genomic profiling test and then treat them accordingly. But most of those patients are low-risk patients, low-recurrence score patients. What about patients who need breast shrinkage in order to have breast conservation? And those patients actually that present the sensor with a unifocal large tumor, particularly located in an area that I'm going to have to take a lot and deform the breast, or they're interested in breast conservation, then those patients that will go the pathway of genomic profiling, making sure that they can downstage them with either neoadjuvant chemotherapy or with neoadjuvant endocrine therapy. Absolutely. So as long as we're talking about the issue of local recurrence, maybe you can provide an update on the so-called CALOR trial. I see there have been some new data presented on that over this past year. Can you update us on that study? Yeah, the CALOR trial evaluated the role of chemotherapy, adjuvant chemotherapy at the time of a local regional recurrence. And the update essentially confirmed that there was benefit from chemotherapy with almost 10 years of follow-up now. But the update confirmed also that the benefit from chemotherapy came out of the ER-negative cohort. There wasn't much benefit from chemotherapy in the ER-positive patients. So that's the main take-home message from CALOR trial, is that adjuvant chemotherapy can be important at the time of local recurrence, but essentially the benefit is limited to ER-negative patients, estrogen receptor-negative patients. So for practical purposes, how do you then translate that into your clinical practice? Obviously, I mean, if you have a her 2 positive patient, you give them anti-HER therapy, of course, and chemotherapy potentially. But for her 2 negative patients, if they are positive, I will usually treat them with endocrine therapy. And obviously, you manage the local recurrence with, you know, surgery radiotherapy, but I will give them endocrine therapy unless there's some very high-risk features, let's say high-grade tumor, quick recurrence in two, three years, in which case I may add chemotherapy. But for triple negative patients, essentially, chemotherapy is how we treat these patients at that point. So you are commenting about HER2-positive disease, and why don't we finish out talking about that, and maybe a good way to get into that is hear about your 67-year-old lady. Yeah, so this lady was a 67-year-old who presented with a T2 and 0M0 stage 2A high-grade triple-positive breast cancer. It was about 3.5 centimeters in diameter and was located in the lateral part of the right breast. So an area that if you do a lumpectomy, although you could have done a lumpectomy based on her breast size, you potentially deform the breast substantially because of the location of the tumor. So because she's HER2-positive, she underwent neoadjuvant chemotherapy. She was treated with six cycles of TCHP. She tolerated pretty well and ended up having a clinical and radiologic complete response. 
So essentially, that patient went to surgery. But the reason I actually put the case in that this is the patient now that we often question whether we actually even need to do surgery for these patients. You know, we have a high probability of having a pathologic complete response, about 50% with dual anti-heart therapy. And when you have a clinical and radiologic complete response based on mammogram, ultrasound, and MRI, there's a good chance that you're not going to find disease when you do surgery. So sometimes patients ask, why do I need surgery? And we say, well, we need it to make sure that you don't have disease in the breast. So in this case, we localized the hydromark clip and removed it. But prior to that, we enrolled these patients into the BR005 study. And this is a study, it's a pilot trial, looking at the role of stereotactic biopsy of the tumor bed before we do the formal surgery for patients like her that get a clinical radiologic complete or near complete response based on mammogram, ultrasound, and MRI, trying to correlate the findings from the stereotactic biopsy to the surgical findings and see if we can improve our ability to declare somebody a pathologic complete response upwards of, let's say, 90 to 95%. And if that is the case, if that trial demonstrates that we can increase our ability to determine pathological complete response above and beyond what the imaging studies tell us, then eventually we're designing now either a prospective single arm or randomized trial through the NCTN network to actually look at the formal avoidance of actually formal surgery in the breast. So I think we've come a long way, but I think based on biology and how we select patients and what we see now, I think we may get to the point that we can formally avoid surgical resection of these patients, but obviously we have to prove that this is a safe approach. And the step to get closer to that is to demonstrate that the stereotactic biopsy can actually get us closer to predicting pathologic complete response. And this lady was enrolled in the study, had the stereotactic biopsy, had her surgery, and of course there was no disease. But as part of the NRGBR005 study, we like to enroll some patients that have some residual disease because at best imaging can get us about 85% accuracy in predicting a negative predictive value. In other words, about an 85% chance that if we say there's a pathologic complete response, Indeed, there is a pathologic complete response. But we want to increase the number close to the mid-90s to be much more comfortable, say to a patient, that you won't have to have formal surgical resection, but you'll go to breast radiotherapy. And that's the next trial. What do you generally estimate as the risk of future recurrence in a patient who has HER2-positive disease with a PATH-CR? So it depends really on the clinical stage of presentation. And if you're a stage one or two clinically non-negative patient, I think those patients have close to 95% chance of being disease-free. If you're clinically non-positive, that risk is a little higher. It's probably in the range of 10 to 15% risk of future event. Now, that's not necessarily all recurrences, may include other things, but that's what we see for some of our her positive trials. Can you comment on where we are today with the issue of whether or not we've been using chemotherapy with trastuzumab for a long time, but now first we started seeing the neoadjuvant setting and now in the adjuvant setting, the addition of pertuzumab, the other anti-HER agent. This lady got both, both in neoadjuvant and adjuvant setting. Can you talk about some of the discussions that are going on about whether to use pertuzumab in the neoadjuvant setting, in the post-neoadjuvant setting, and for that matter, in the classic adjuvant setting? So as you know, pertuzumab initially received an accelerated approval as neoadjuvant therapy in combination with trastuzumab and chemotherapy. And eventually, based on the affinity trial, 
got an approval for adjuvant therapy as well for high-risk patients. And the definition of high-risk varies somewhat. It's in the eye of the beholder, so to speak, because the FDA did not expressly say what constitutes high-risk. So now we have two options of giving dual anti-heart therapy with pertuzumab in the adjuvant or neoadjuvant setting. Our preference in our institution is to use it in the neoadjuvant setting, and particularly for patients who present with tumors over two centimeters or not positive up front, then our preference is to use the neoadjuvant for reasons that we discussed earlier, the ability to downstage the disease in the breast, do less axillary surgery, and so on and so forth. In addition, it helps us coordinate better with plastic surgery and with genetic testing. There's a lot of logistic advantages. There is a reason to consider it otherwise, and that would be for a patient that has smaller tumor, let's say one to two centimeter tumor with clinically negative axilla. For a patient like that, although in our institution we use neoadjuvant chemotherapy for T1C or larger, not necessarily with dual anti-heart therapy, but we use neoadjuvant therapy for those patients. But if you really want to make sure the patient needs or benefits from the addition of pertuzumab, you could argue to do surgery first for some of these patients to see if the axilla is positive. Because if the axilla is positive, then obviously the patient is a high risk and you can give dual anti-heart therapy. But if it's negative, then you can treat according to the a sort of APT trial, right? The trastuzumab with weekly paclitaxel that showed excellent outcomes for these patients that were essentially a low-risk HER2-positive patients. Most of them were positive HER2-positive. So you can see that argument. But for patients that are high-risk clinically based on tumor size or positive nodes, we treat those patients into the neoadjuvant setting. Now, what you do afterwards is also sometimes a matter of debate. The FDA said continue trastuzumab and pertuzumab for a whole year. Some people say, well, if the patient gets a pathologic complete response, should you not give dual anti-heart therapy? You can argue this both ways. You know, the fact that you get a dual anti-heart therapy led to PCR, so why you not continue? Particularly if the patient had positive nodes, because those patients still have some risk of recurrence. They're not in the range of the very high 90s. They're probably closer to 85 to 90% outcome. So for those patients, we'll continue. But for somebody that, say, presented with 2.1, centimeter tumor, got a PCR, the nodes are negative, there's no treatment effect, one could argue that may be a patient that you don't continue dual anti-therapy. Some oncologists think that way. But certainly based on the FDA approval, we usually continue it for the whole year duration on both. So the last question I want to ask you about is a more global one, just in terms of what the NSABP is up to nowadays. So we, besides the trials that I mentioned, like the NSABP B51 and BR005, we have an adjuvant trial, NRG-BR003, that we're asking the question of adjuvant carboplatin in addition to AC paclitaxel. In other words, the adjuvant role of carboplatin that's accruing, you know, slower than we expected because it's an adjuvant trial. Those patients are mostly in the neoadjuvant setting. And as you know, in the neoadjuvant studies, we saw the increase in PCR, about 15% or so, and some trend towards EFS benefits, but obviously that question needs to be addressed. So that's one of the trials that we have now ongoing. We're about to start a trial in advanced HER2 positive patients, first-line trial, looking at the effect of tezolizumab in addition to paclitaxel, trastuzumab, and pertuzumab. So that's a checkpoint inhibitor. And also we have a neoadjuvant study throughout the NSABB Foundation, the NSABB B59, also Gepard 2 trial with the German group, 
that looks at atezolizumab as neoadjuvant therapy in addition to chemotherapy for triple negative patients. So this is a randomized trial adding atezolizumab versus placebo with the addition to adjuvant chemotherapy that includes AC or EC with paclitax or carbo. So that's the main studies that we have now available the NSABB portfolio. We participate in some of the other studies with CDK inhibitors, such as the PALAS trial and also the amebaciclib trial. And we also design in a trial for ER-positive HER2-negative patients with immunotherapy in addition to chemotherapy for high-risk patients after new adjuvant therapy. So that's about our portfolio for now. Subsequent to these interviews, the primary results from the Phase 3 Impassion 130 trial were presented at the 2018 ESMO meeting and published in the New England Journal of Medicine, demonstrating that the addition of atezolizumab to napaclitaxel significantly improved progression-free survival when used in the first-line treatment of patients with advanced triple-negative breast cancer in both the intention-to-treat population and the pdl one positive subgroup. At this first interim survival analysis, a clinically meaningful improvement was also reported among patients with pdl one positive tumors, where the overall survival was increased by 10 months with a hazard rate of 0.62. This concludes our program. Special thanks to our faculty, and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for Breast Cancer Update Surgical Edition. <music>